specialist in uh, Noblesville, Indiana. He is getting near retirement now, but uh, in the past, he's been a very, very busy person. And he used to be part of a big group. We call these physicians ENTs, don't we? And uh, some of us have been to see ENTs before. Uh, and he was part of this big group in Indianapolis with about eight of them together. I think they had the largest practice at the time and had hundreds of patients going through there. And one time we were up on vacation, and one of our kids was having a little trouble with their ears. And so we said, uh, can Dr. Jim look at that? So we went down to his office and saw his really nice new office at that point, state-of-the-art. And in the middle of this big room, they had this, this special chamber and it was, was kind of like a bank vault sitting in the middle of the room. It was kind of weird. There was just soundproof booth kind of thing. And they would put a person in there, and then they could put all kinds of sounds in there, and they could register what they could hear, what they couldn't hear, you know, high pitches, low pitches, loud, soft, all kinds of different kinds of sounds. And, and then from there, they could diagnose just what kind of a hearing loss they had or hearing impairment, and then they could come up with some kind of a plan of what they could do to help that person. It's very neat to see that and uh, be able to realize that, you know, there's some people who really know what they're doing <laughs> and can figure these things out. What they were checking was the auditory response, you know, can you hear, can you, can you hear certain things? Most of us can hear just fine. Everyone in here, the reason you're here today, for one reason, is because you can hear. There's something you want to hear, something you want to experience, and you're here without you know, special devices on or whatever because you have the ability to hear. But some people are hearing impaired, and some people struggle with this, and some can't hear at all. Whether someone can hear or not, however, is no guarantee that they're listening because, you see, hearing and listening are not the same thing, are they? Just because you have the ability to hear something doesn't mean you're listening to whatever that is. Parents can tell you that. You say things to your kids, didn't you hear what I said? Oh, I never never heard that. Wives can tell you that, can't they? Uh-huh. Uh, wives, you shouldn't have shook your head that quickly. Uh, <laughs> but you say things to your husband, and then later on say, yeah, I told you that. No, you never said that. You know, they completely miss it. So hearing and, and listening are not the same thing. Um, even if someone's ears work just fine, it's no guarantee that they're listening to whatever you're saying. And as we continue this story today then, with chapter 15, we come to a lesson called God's Messengers. The year is about 875 B.C. And God is having trouble getting his people to listen. And that means also to obey. You know, when you, when you listen, you respond appropriately to whatever has been communicated. And Israel was in desperate need to hear what God had to say. Israel was in desperate need of repentance. The priests, the judges were corrupt, violence, social injustice, uh, the oppression of the poor and the righteous of the land was going on constantly. There were 19 different kings between Jeroboam and Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. And all of these guys were bad, bad to the bone. I mean, these were bad guys. And there wasn't a good one among them. God's people had forgotten their covenant. They made a covenant with God back at Mount Sinai with Moses and the law. They were only following the law in a ritualistic way. You know, certain things you know, you've got to do. You've got to do our rituals. got to do our sacrifices. got to sing our songs. got to pray our prayers. But their hearts were not in those things. So they're keeping up this appearance of following God, 
but at the same time, they're following all the other gods of their neighbors. The gods called Baal and Asherah and Chemosh and, and, and Melon and just a lot of different gods. And because they're enamored with all the activity of those gods and goddesses, they fall into that. And so God sends messengers. God sends prophets. And these guys didn't get a very receptive audience, did they? They, they got hurt. They got killed. They, they had people imprison them. They had people mistreat them. But they were, they were sharing God's message to try and call people back. This is an important thing for us to understand if we want to know the Bible. 22% of the Bible is found in these pages between Isaiah and Malachi, what we call the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets. And so it's crucial to understanding the whole picture of what God is doing. But these are often the most neglected books of the Bible. Some of us haven't looked at those for a while, or maybe never. And so it's important that the story continues and the story gets into these messengers because God, through a period of, in this section, 208 years, calling the people back, come back in repentance, come back to me, come home. Now we've looked at a timeline together, and I want you to see this again. Basically, it's this. You've got two different segments here. The nation split. We did that two weeks ago with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, remember? And then it continues with the northern kingdom at the top and the southern kingdom at the bottom. On this first page of the timeline, you see this big arrow at the end. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is overrun. And they are taken away in captivity as a result of judgment, as a result of what God said was going to come. He's been saying that for 200 years. Now it happens. And they are taken away, and that nation is destroyed. That nation never exists again. That kingdom never comes back. Go to page two, please, Jerry. And here we see it continuing now. The northern one's gone. Now we have the southern one gone. King's still coming, and, and prophets still speaking to them. And finally, they are taken on by Babylon. And Babylon destroys the southern kingdom, takes them away into exile for 70 years. 70 years of exile. This is the time of Daniel, the time of Ezekiel. Uh, and eventually they come back, and they are able to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they're able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and that kingdom comes back. And that's very important because God had promised that through the line of David, which is the kingdom of Judah, that he would bring a Savior. He would bring a Messiah. He would bring someone to redeem them and bring them back. And the nation comes back, and it continues. It's not as strong as it was before, but they continue right on up to the time of Jesus when he comes to earth. And then in 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem falls again, this time to the Romans. And then there's a long period there without a king on the throne until Jesus will one day come back, as Michael mentioned, even in the communion meditation today. Now, interestingly enough, at this Christmas season, a lot of these prophetic things speak to this season, don't they? They speak about this coming Messiah. They speaking over a period of time for 700 years. They say, one day God's going to send somebody. One day God's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a deliverer, and he's going to change everything. We know some of these prophecies. We know Isaiah, for instance, it says, this one is going to be born of a virgin. That was said 700 years before it happened through Mary. It said in Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem. It said in Jeremiah that other children in Bethlehem would be viciously killed, and we found that to be true when Herod 
killed all the boys two years and under after Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled and went to Egypt. And then Hosea tells us that God's going to call his son out of Egypt. And everybody said, well, why would that happen? Well, it was because they had to escape there. And it fulfilled later as Hosea made that prediction. The most complete prediction, perhaps, about the Messiah is found in Isaiah 9. You're familiar with these words. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So there will be a forever kingdom through Jesus, who is of the line of David. Well, with Christmas just three days away, I think it's important for us to remember that God is preaching this message. He's sending it out through his messengers and is ultimately fulfilled in this one person, Jesus, who actually fulfills about 300 prophecies. And that's an incredible thing that God did. Now, this morning, we want to just focus on two of these prophets. We want to focus on Elijah and Hosea. Both of them took God's message to the northern kingdom, doomed for destruction, in 722, it's destroyed, taken away in captivity, and never heard from again. In the days of Elijah, the nation of Israel had sunk deeper and deeper into the cesspool of idolatry under the deliberate and unapologetic wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. You ever hear them? Notoriously bad people. It was like they were trying to outdo the kings before them. You know, will you they led you into idolatry? And they got you to follow Baal, but we're going to get you to follow Baal and Asherah and, and all these other things too. And we're going to build temples to them. So up in their kingdom in Samaria, they build a temple to Baal. And they make that the, the biggest place where Baal's ever been worshipped by anybody. And they're just chasing after this false god with every bit of their energy, every bit of their resources. But Yahweh, Jehovah, is a jealous god. Remember he said that back in the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no graven images. And he pursues them. And he says, this is not right. You need to come back to me. And so he sends these messengers like Elijah to speak on his behalf and to demonstrate sometimes very powerfully that there is one God and one God alone. First thing Elijah does is he predicts that there's going to be a time with no rain. And he says to Ahab, I'm going to pray that God will stop the rain. And the rain stops. And it won't start again until I pray that God starts the rain again. And for three years, the land of Israel has no rain. Imagine what that does for your crops. Imagine what that does for your productivity. Imagine what that does when you have to go to your neighboring countries to buy food because you have no way to raise food of your own. And so in this time of prosperity, suddenly there is this time when they can't do anything right. And he's striking at the heart of the God they were serving, which is Baal, because Baal was a fertility God. And his promise, supposedly, was that they were going to produce a lot and that they were going to have good crops and a good harvest. And now suddenly they can't have one. So he's already striking at the heart of this false worship of Baal. And then at the end of this time, when he's about ready to pray that the rain would start again, he challenges King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and all their false prophets and priests to a duel of kinds, to a, to a contest. And he says, let's go out to Mount Carmel. 
Mount Carmel is where you have your, your strongest, highest place for the worship of Baal. And he knew that there was an old altar there to Jehovah, but it had broken down, been disregarded for hundreds of years. And he says, let's have the contest there. So you assemble all of the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, and they bring together 850. That's a, that's a large group of people, 850 people on one side. And you get over here and you build up your altar. You, you arrange the wood on it and the sacrifice and everything. And then you're going to call on your God to strike it with fire. You're not going to light the fire. You're going to ask Baal to do that. And I'm going to build up this altar here for Jehovah. And I'm going to put on the wood and I'm going to put on the sacrifice. And then I'm going to call on Jehovah to bring the fire in order to burn up that sacrifice. So he says, you go first. And so the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they're calling on Baal. And, of course, Baal can't hear. He doesn't have ears. He's not alive. He doesn't exist. But they're serving and worshiping and, and challenging this, this God that they love, this God that they serve, this false God, to send fire from heaven and to start this, this wood burning. Of course, nothing happens all day long. And so Elijah taunts them. He says, well, maybe he's gone on vacation. Maybe he's, he's busy. Maybe he's, he's on a long journey. He can't hear you. Better cry louder. And they start cutting their bodies with knives and, and spears, trying to, to attract Baal's attention. And all day long this goes on. Finally, as it gets towards the afternoon hours, uh, Elijah says, okay, enough's enough. You guys stop. I'm going to call on God. He prays a very simple prayer. God, these people know need to know who the true God is. And I pray you will answer with fire. And as soon as he finishes that prayer, God sends some kind of a lightning bolt or whatever it is, and this thing starts burning so profusely that even though they had doused it with water and they had tried to prevent anything from starting to, to, to uh, uh, burn, all of a sudden the whole thing is just burn up, just, just consumed with fire. And the people fall down and praise to God, and they begin saying over and over again, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah says, We'll gather up all of these these uh, priests of Baal, all these false prophets, and, and let's destroy them. And so 850 of them are executed. He says to King Ahab, now the rain's coming. I'm going to pray for rain. And they see just a little bit of rain cloud coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. So King Ahab gets in his chariot. He rides back to Jezreel where his, his queen Jezebel is. And Elijah decides he wants to get there first. He doesn't have a chariot. So he just gathers up his robe into his belt and he starts running. And he outruns the chariot all the way back to Jezreel, a distance of 18 or 20 miles. And he gets there before Ahab just in time to announce to Jezebel, all of your priests, all of your prophets have been done away with. For she flies into a rage. And she tells Elijah, if I don't kill you before tomorrow night, you know, something's wrong. Your, your life is on the line. And he runs again. And he runs all the way south, goes about another 100 miles until he's just completely exhausted and he collapses there. And he prays to God, you know, that he could just die. And God sends him some sustenance. He gives him some food. And on the basis of that food, he travels for another 40 days and he goes all the way south, all the way down to Mount Horeb. Remember the other name for Mount Horeb? Mount Sinai. He's back at the very place where it all began, where the covenant was set up, where Moses was spoken to, the law of Moses was given, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. And where the people started this relationship with God that was a covenant that had been broken, destroyed. It was pretty much non-existent. He's back at that place, and he is defeated. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He believes he's the only true person left. Did you ever get that way? 
You ever believe you're the only person being honest, the only person following God, the only person that is standing up for what is right? That's exactly how Elijah felt. And he prays to God, you know, this is the end. I just, I just want to die like this. This is it. I'm the only one. God says, I want to say something to you. Do you have your ears on? Can you listen? He says, I want you to go out to the edge of this cave, and I want to speak to you. And I want, want you to hear a message from me. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Elijah had already seen God's fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord came to him and he said, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint... Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. That is, replace Ahab and Jezebel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. In other words, your days are about over, but you're going to pass the mantle to Elisha. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people that are still true to me, and we're going to regroup. We're going to rebuild. And those who are faithful, they will be the remnant. They ended up losing that kingdom of Israel, but they were still faithful around. Even some taken into captivity were faithful to God. And Elijah was not alone. So he gets up from there. He's encouraged. He goes and does the anointing he's supposed to do of a new king over Aram, new king over Israel. And he passes the mantle on to Elisha to become the next prophet, who in fact ends up being about twice as powerful as even Elijah was in the spiritual power that he had. But what I want you to notice is this, that he did not find God in an earthquake. He didn't find him in the fire. did not find him in this mighty wind that shook everything and blew apart the rocks. God was in a voice. A very small, still voice. What we call a whisper. Barely audible. But when you're listening, you could hear him. And God was speaking in the most powerful way. Elijah had ears to hear, but he also had a heart to match those ears. A heart that was listening. A heart that was willing. And so he listened to God and he obeyed him and he did what God said. God also sent Hosea. To Israel. He sent him not as so much a voice to speak, but as a living object lesson. If you've read from chapter 15, you realize that Hosea was called into service as a prophet, and he was told not to say so much, but as to do something, as to marry this woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him. Now, we don't counsel young men to do that. We don't say, go out and find the less virtuous woman you can find and marry her. 
Go out and find yourself an adulteress. Go out and find yourself a, a prostitute and marry her. But that is exactly what God tells Hosea to do. Because he says, I want the people to see what I've been going through. I want you to see them to see the relationship that I have with them, this broken relationship, this unfaithful relationship. Here I am, their faithful husband, providing for them, uh, taking care of them, protecting them. And I've been doing it for centuries. I've been watching over them. I've been trying to nurture them and to guide them along. And constantly they're unfaithful. Constantly they're pursuing their other lovers, the other gods and goddesses that are not gods and goddesses at all. They are to be called back. And I am declaring my love for them. I'm declaring that I'm not giving up on them. I want them back. I want them to come home. I want the relationship to be restored. And so Hosea goes through this great pain with his wife, who even though they have three children together, and even though there are times they seem to be okay and working as a family and functioning and, and happy, that she keeps running off to these other lovers, and she is never faithful. We have no sign that she ever changed. And he hangs in there as a faithful husband in spite of that. And even one time he goes to the place of prostitution and he, he like buys her back. He pays the fee and he talks with her and he says, I want you to come home. I want you to come back and be my wife again. And so God was showing the lengths to which he will go to pursue us and to bring us home again. That God doesn't give up on us. That even though we were faithless, even though we were unfaithful, he is faithful, and he pursues us with that steadfast love. What, what an example, what a painful example Hosea had to set. There's certainly no indication that Israel ever, ever turned back to God, continued its spiritual harlotry, its spiritual prostitution of chasing after all these gods, even though God offered forgiveness, God offered blessing, if they would repent, if they would stop their idolatry, they refused to come back to God. They heard the message, but they never listened. They never listened. God's quiet, still voice, still voice is still calling today. He doesn't generally use bullhorns. He doesn't generally use megatrons. He doesn't generally use, uh, you know, messages where millions of people would be captured by it and can't resist it and. And uh, he, he generally speaks in this still, small voice, doesn't he? This Bible is a powerful book, the most powerful book in the world. This Bible is the Word of God. This is God revealing himself to us, telling us his message, giving us warnings, giving us promises, giving us his blessings, telling us how to live life. And yet, even though you may have 10 or 20 of these things around your house, it may sit on a shelf for weeks at a time. It's a still, small voice. It's a whisper. Are we listening? Prayer. Again, a still, small voice. You don't even hear God speaking when you pray to God, but God can speak to you in prayer. God can touch your heart. God can communicate to you. God can reveal things to you and bring wisdom to your life if you're listening. And it's inaudible. It doesn't even require the ability to hear something. But if you listen, you will get God's message. Hearing and listening are not necessarily the same thing. One is simply proof of normal auditory response. You have the ability to hear. Great. The other is not only comprehending the message given, but responding to it appropriately. 
The first only involves our ears, but the second involves the heart, and that's the issue right here. Is your heart listening? Is your soul listening to God? If you have heard God's message today or any other day, are you listening? Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you open? Are you obedient? Are you responding as you need to? Are you repenting? Are you willing to admit the errors of your ways and to turn back to Him, the one who loves you, who knows you better than you know yourself, and who wants to bless you, who wants to help you? He is the faithful husband. We are the unfaithful bride. And we must come back in repentance. It is not too late to repent. It is not too late to learn to listen. And I pray not only your ears will be listening, but your heart as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be on our hearts today, uh, that we would not be uh, shut off, we would not be distracted, we would not be uh, so enamored with things of the world that your message, your quiet whisper can't get through to us. We open our hearts to you. We open our, our, uh, our will, our soul, our spirit to you. Not just that we would hear a message, but that we would listen. And I pray today that you would be with every person here in the sound of my voice. As they have heard your word, that they would not only hear it, but they would do what you expect, what you require, what you so desperately want us to respond with. Father, you've gone to great lengths to save us. You have sent your Son into the world. We, we celebrate that this week, that Jesus came as a baby to, to, to live that perfect life, to give his life so that we could go free. We're listening. We're listening to whatever you would say to each of our hearts today. There's someone here today, Lord, that needs to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as the leader of their life, as the Savior and Redeemer of their life to get them away from their sins and the penalties. May they do that. If there's someone here that has been playing back and forth between other gods and goddesses and saying that they serve God, but there's still all this other stuff going on in their life, may they, in repentance, come back to you today. May they come back as you expect them to, to, to surrender, to, to humble themselves, to confess those sins, and to receive your forgiveness. For all of the rest of us that may not be listening so well, may we learn to listen. May we learn to have our hearts as well as our ears open. I pray in Jesus' name.